Lights. You're listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 423. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink, a.k.a. Agent Friendship. You are listening to This Week in Marvel. Every week we talk about all the new stuff happening at the House of Ideas. That's what we call Marvel. Comic books, movies, TV shows, games, news, so much more. If you know your dates and your math and your history, we are celebrating 80 years of Marvel history all year long. So we're going to talk about some history later in the episode. And I'm very excited because this is our second part of our conversation with veteran editors, just like the grunts who get things done, Ralph Macchio and Tom Brevoort. Two of them uh, were talking about the 80s with us last week working at Marvel. And now they are here to talk about the 90s and so much more. Yeah, we talked a lot about their time at the Marvel offices in the 1980s last week, but we're keeping it going. We're talking about the next decade, the 90s, because they put their work in. They were here for a long time. Tom Brevoort is still with us. And there have been a ton of big changes in the comic book community and the industry throughout the 90s. It was a big time, I think, for a lot of the readers of our generation. And uh, we're going to also talk about some hidden comic book gems of the 1990s uh, that maybe you guys want to check out and read because they're wild, wacky, weird, and delightful. And then we put that call out on Twitter, which we'll get to later in the episode as well. And man, we got some great stuff. Lots of great suggestions, especially from comics pros and and various other uh, folks that we know. But Lorraine, (gasps) something big happened this week. Hold on to your butts because Marvel Studios Black Widow, the teaser trailer and poster released this week. We got our first real look. If you weren't at San Diego Comic-Con and you didn't get inside of Hall H, this is your first look at our Black Widow or Black Widows in action. I'm so excited for this movie, May 5th, 2020, so soon. We don't need to tell you about what's in the trailer. You guys can go see it. It's on Marvel's YouTube channel, marvel.com, every single Marvel social page. The poster is gorgeous. It's like really cool. But the teaser trailer is wunderbar. Uh, So very exciting. Make sure you check that out. And now there's so much more that we are hyped about this week, comma, including news. We've got a big announcement for the comic side of things. There's a new comic series called Strange Academy. That is a brand new series that is going to be written by Scotty Young. We are going to have some art by Umberto Ramos, and it is going to be really cool. And shout out to Scotty Young. You guys probably know him very well from his super cute Marvel Babies artwork, but he's also written the recent Deadpool run. Umberto Ramos has a very amazing historic run on Spider-Man as well as a lot of other beautiful things. So that's going to be an awesome team. The idea here is that magic is in the Marvel Universe. Magic is reborn. It's, It's vibrant in the Marvel Universe. So... We've had schools for superheroes. We've had schools for supervillains. We've had schools for mutants. But what if you have magic powers and you don't know how to use them, right? Well, then you should go to school for it. And then you would (laughs) go there and learn all about how to use your magic powers at Strange Academy. It is coming out March 2020, the first issue. The series will center around a character, a new character named Emily Bright, as well as a cast of students from around the Marvel Universe. The school slash the campus, it is set in New Orleans, which is really cool because it's not someplace we see a ton of in Marvel Comics. Yeah, we've really only seen stuff from Monica Rambeau down in New Orleans for the most part, but it's going to be really cool because New Orleans has such a magical history in real life. I think it'll be an interesting way to kind of look at local culture and sort of the innate magic of the city and the bayou. And I think if you're a fan of, say, you know, Doctor Strange, movie magic and stuff like that, I think you're going to find some really cool elements in this series that's going to help you 
dig into Strange Academy. So look out for that coming in March 2020 and get ready for us to tell you all about it as we get closer and closer to that release. There was some other cool news that happened this week, some stuff that were hyped about. There was an announcement of a Marvel's Avengers art book. There was the announcement of the Hellions comic book series. And I want to give a special shout out to our sister show, Women of Marvel, because they have a really cool episode Mm -hmm. that uh, Judy and the team did at Lucasfilm. And we have a whole bunch of Star Wars, Lucasfilm stuff coming up really soon. So it's just cool. If you want to know about Star Wars and different perspectives and all kinds of stuff, definitely check out Women of Marvel. That latest episode is a banger. As they say, right? <laughs> Heck yeah. Oh, also, special shout out to Cajun Gamer. It's a superstore for gaming, comics, toys, and more in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Yeah, so I've been talking to Cajun Gamer on Twitter a bunch. And now they're going to be playing This Week at Marvel and Marvel's Pull List in their shop. Aww. So I said, you know what? We're going to give you a shout out on the show. Say thank you for playing us. Uh, hopefully, some of our suggestions on books to read spark some of the customers to check those out. But this goes out to anybody out there. If you are a shop or uh, someone who works at a comic book store or game store or whatever, and you're playing our shows, let us know. Yeah. We, we want to hear about it um, because it's super cool. And uh, we want to give you a shout out on a future episode. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, you mentioned the pull list. What is Marvel's pull list? Ooh, thank you, Lorraine. Marvel's pull list is another show I do with Tucker Marcus. We talk about all of the new Marvel comics that come out every single week. So our top picks, which we pick for every week, our top picks this week were Annihilation Scourge Nova, number one, Savage Avengers, number eight, Daredevil, number 14, and X-Men, number three. You guys can subscribe to Marvel's Pull List wherever you get your podcasts, and that includes Pandora. Watch video versions of the show on Marvel.com. And we actually have a brand new section on Marvel.com for all of our podcasts where you can listen to the latest episodes of every show. You can actually click one button and go subscribe on Android, subscribe on Apple, whatever your device is. Everything's all there. We'll put the link in our show notes for you to uh, to check it out. Yeah, you know what? That feels like a moment in history. That's a segue. Wow. That yeah. is a segue. Segue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That like really speaks to my heart in a lot of ways because it's a pun and it's a segue and it's everything that I hold dear. I know. I get it, Lorraine. Uh, because we did the segue because we are going to talk about this week in Marvel history, colon, uh, because we're celebrating 80 years of Marvel history this year. I have gone through every week and picked out uh, a bunch of fun stuff that happened. Usually it's comics and comic releases or movie releases and stuff that is important to Marvel history. So we are looking at the week of December 6th through the 12th across Marvel history. We're going to start with an incredible day. It is December 10th, 1962. Put on your booties. This one's <laughs> going to be intense. First up, Amazing Spider-Man number one Hot by day. Stan Lee and Steve Ditko swings into life. After wowing the world in Amazing Fantasy number 15, uh, just a couple months prior, Spidey gets his own series. This issue also introduces J. Jonah Jameson, his son John Jameson, and the villain, the Chameleon. Chameleon, one of the coolest, most nefarious Marvel villains. It is also the first Spider-Man slash Fantastic Four team-up. It's a big one all around. Yeah, speaking of Fantastic Four. Yeah, Fantastic Four number 12 comes out this week by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, giving us our first Thing versus Hulk fight. It is a classic. And it comes back over and over and over again. It's crazy to think that this all started in issue 12. I know. Also, because this week doesn't stop, 
Iron Man and Ho Yinsen debut in Tales of Suspense number 39 by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Don Heck, with Iron Man's creation getting some input from, of course, Jack Kirby. Tales of Suspense at this time was also uh, still an anthology, sci-fi, suspense magazine. So not only does it have this Iron Man story, it has a tech story, additional comic stories, including Gundar by Lee and Ditko, which is gorgeous. It's a really pretty story. December 9th, 1963, Big Man, as well as the Enforcers, Montana, Fancy Dan, and Ox, uh, they debut in The Amazing Spider-Man, number 10 by Stanley and Steve Ditko. The first page has a big caption that reads, caution, think twice. Lorraine, it's in all caps. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. You got to read it like Stan wrote it. Caution! Think twice before starting this movie-length tale! We feel it only fair to warn you. Once you have read it, once you have savored the thrills and surprises which only Spider-Man can provide, you may find it difficult to ever be satisfied by lesser magazines! Enough said, Stan. That was the best possible reading of that. Well done. (laughs) Why, thank you. Also, Fancy Dan is a national treasure. If there's not a Fancy Dan movie in, like, at some point... It's a travesty. All right, back to the history. December 10th, 1964. The Beatles appear in the Human Torch Thing Story in Strange Tales, number 130, by Stan Lee, Bob Powell, and Chick Stone. It is a hoot. I highly suggest you go read this issue. Uh, It is great because... Ben and Johnny try to take their gals to go see the Beatles and stuff happens. Ben Grimm, a.k.a. The Thing, has a Beatle wig that he wears at one point. (laughs) So good. All right. Next year, December 8th, 1966, Mike Murdoch, a.k.a. Matt's quote-unquote twin brother, along with Leapfrog, make their first appearances in Daredevil number 25 by Stanley and Gene Colan. Mike Murdoch was actually just a ruse. He's a, a fake twin personality that Matt used as an excuse, but it is wild and wonderful and <laughs> super weird. He's all like, what's up, cats and kittens? How's it going, daddy-o? He's real fun. Uh, uh, I just love the idea that he's like, well, they see my face as Daredevil and that worked, so might as well just have a twin as well. Yep. I can do whatever I want. It's nuts. And they're like, well, that can't be Matt. That has to be Mike. Yeah, he says daddy-o. December 12th, 1967, Carol Danvers debuts in Marvel Superheroes, number 13, by Roy Thomas and Gene Colan. Carol debuts as the head of NASA security in true Lady Boss fashion, and she would go on later to aid the original Captain Marvel in saving the planet and then get caught up in this explosion. Uh, that would unlock her creep powers and transform her into a superhero named Ms. Marvel later on. But this is just a real quick intro. She's It's like, hi, I'm Carol. I'm the head of security. Bye. She is old school. She's been around a very long time. Truth. It's great. December 9th, 1969. How do you stop a human killer whale? I don't know, Ryan. But that that's the question posed on the cover of Submariner number 23 by Roy Thomas and Marie Severin as Orca makes his big undersea debut. I definitely suggest if you've never read... Uh, this run. Go check it out because it's got great Namor stuff, but Marie Severin just absolutely crushing it. She she doesn't get as much credit as she deserves for some of the glorious work that she did. This issue is tremendous. December 8th, 1987, Venom makes his first full-body appearance at the very end of Amazing Spider-Man number 299 by Devin McElhinney and Todd McFarlane. Eddie Murphy and Paul Schaefer also kind of make cameos in this issue, and it is beautiful 80s goodness. Love it. December 8th, 2004, Blade Trinity is released into theaters. It's got Triple H. It's got ridiculousness. It's got Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, Blade Trinity. 
And last, but certainly not least, December 7th, 2005, Marvel Zombies number one by Robert Kirkman and Sean Phillips picks up a nightmarish and darkly comedic zombie story that begins in Ultimate Fantastic Four. It's gruesome. It's fantastic. All the superheroes keep their little brains, but they hunger for human flesh. The coloring on that series (gasps) disgusts me. It is so good, but it's gross. Super duper grossy gross, but how great and like perfect for Robert Kirkman. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that was all kinds of history. But Lorraine, now we should hone in on the 1990s. We're going to do a little bit again, talking about some of our hidden gems of the 90s. You want to kick us off? We'll go back and forth with a couple. Yeah, let's do it. I had to just give a shout out to, even though we talked about it recently because it was recently in our Marvel history, the first appearance of Squirrel Girl in Marvel Super Heroes number eight from 1991 by Steve Ditko and Will Murray. How could I not call out my favorite character? She just wants to be the sidekick to Iron Man. She has a lot to offer, even though she helps him crush Doom. Still nothing. Yeah. A really delightful first appearance. Totally. I want to pick Forever Yesterday. It's a story that appeared in the series New Warriors, issues 11 through 13 uh, from 1991. It's by Fabian Nicieza and Mark Bagley. This one is super cool. You guys know that I love, you know, alternate universes and sort of what if stories. And this one takes a very different turn. It's like you've got this sort of what happened if the Sphinx took control. It gets wild. It gets weird. Uh, We actually got a bunch of tweets in favor of New Warriors as a whole, including the series, including from our old friend and co-host Ben Morse. He says, all 75 issues of New Warriors, but particularly the first 50. Then there were some more people who chimed in. Let's talk New Warriors at New Warriors Talk said, issue 18 in particular was a landmine going off. Everything that happened in the series before earn the series this betrayal and status quo change the patient plotting paid off big time um and so they suggest reading from the beginning issues one through 25 and then the welcome to geek town podcast at geek town podcast says new warriors especially the forever yesterday and the nothing but the truth stories also a special shout out to Derek robertson for taking over the book and doing the only redesign of a character that this guy likes better than the original that would be Speedball. Uh, I actually thought of my next one because Jody Hauser tweeted how much she loved the MC2, and she's done a ton of writing uh, within MC2 with the Spider Girls title. But that made me think of Spider Girl number one from 1998. That whole run is super duper fun. It introduces Mayday Parker, the daughter of Peter Parker, in the MC2 universe. And in that universe, Peter Parker was injured and he was forced to retire. But now his teenage daughter, May, aka Mayday, starts having powers pop up as she enters her teenage years. And she encounters some like really weird, fun mashups like Dark Devil and Lady Hawk and the Fantastic Five. Um, but she also is like trying to help her friend. It, it's very like 16 Candles esque to me because it's like her trying to save her ducky esque friend from like constantly being bullied and crushing the basketball games. And I don't know. It's just really fun. Uh, it's great. Yeah. Jody suggested the Wild Thing limited series. And this all comes out of an, an issue of What If that was so popular they had to give it its own series. Which is so fun. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to pick Ghost Rider, Wolverine, Punisher, Hearts of Darkness. It's from 1991 by Howard Mackey and John Romita Jr., Klaus Jansen. I remember reading it over and over and over again. It's got John Romita Jr. going back to do uh, Mephisto and Blackheart, which are characters that he helped create in Daredevil with Anna Senti. And it has Wolverine and Punisher and Ghost Rider all ending up at the same like motel in a place called Christ Crown. And it gets really dark and weird. It's gorgeous and fun 
It's a gnarly story. Highly suggest it. Love it. Uh, my next pick was just like a single issue. This is maybe not a super hidden gem because it was in the Avengers run, but I'm just obsessed with this issue, which is Avengers number 325 by Mark Grunwald and Rick Levins. This is like a very Cersei-centric issue, and that's why I like this issue. Cersei offers Cap a bubble bath on the first page, and he's like, I don't think that would be appropriate. Um, but then she has this like fun party, and they're like, wait, there are people here from Wakanda that we have to like, you know, go have meetings with. And she's like, they're invited. Everyone's invited to Cersei's party. And it's just really fun, and it's kind of like a silly time for the Avengers with an interlaced story of like villains infiltrating and whatnot. But Cersei is the star of that issue, and it's where it's at. Heck yeah. All right, another pick for me is Round Robin, The Sidekick's Revenge. It's a storyline in Amazing Spider-Man from 1991, issues 353 through 358. I like can close my eyes and remember where I was when I bought this. It was at a video store in Franklin Square, New York, and they had the comics on the shelf. I remember reading this and being like, why are all these superheroes on this you know, cover together with Spider-Man. It's got Night Thrasher and it's got Nova and Punisher and all these other characters. Uh, and so I wasn't alone in wanting to put this on here. We had a, a bunch of people who chimed in. Wally D. Orem, a.k.a. at Wally132 on Twitter said, I was waiting for this. Um, Donnie Letterer, a.k.a. at Donnie Letterer on Twitter says, I love the twisted take on the hero partner dynamic. Highly suggest you read this one. So then my final pick will be Clandestine 1994 by Alan Davis. Ryan, it kicks off with MODOK. It all starts with MODOK. So this is for you. As every good story should. Uh, this is such a fun little story. It's written and drawn by Alan Davis. And it's about a family of superheroes. Uh, in the very beginning of the issue, it's basically revealed there are all these different family members. And they think they're like uncles and grandmas and children. But it turns out they are all the children of this one couple that are essentially like mystically powered and they all have different superpowers and it's just like fun and wacky and weird. And Dan Slott actually tweeted this too. This was the stuff for me uh, with two covers of the clandestine. Also, they are the Destine family. They so are they clan. Are clan Destine. Destine. So yeah, good. really fun. Yeah. So you had a bunch more picks. I have a bunch more picks. I want to put those all up on Marvel.com. We'll have the team put that up uh, in a couple days. Uh, so my last one for us to talk about on the show is Spider-Man number 17. It is an issue from 1991. This is just after Todd McFarlane left, Eric Larson left. We're going to get into that in a couple minutes. But this one is by Anna Senti and Rick Leonardi. This one freaked me out as a kid. Spider-Man dies in this issue. And... He is then uh, he goes through a whole adventure with Thanos and death and he's like trying to reconcile his life and it's really dark and, and beautiful and creepy and sweet and goes to the core of Spider-Man and heroism and what it means to be Spidey. It is a wonderful one off issue in this run. Lots more for us to talk about in our, our gems. We'll put that on the website because we got to talk a little bit more about the 90s as we get you ready to hear from Ralph Macchio and Tom Brevoort, who were Marvel Comics editors throughout the 80s and 90s. And so the 90s was a wild time for not just Marvel Comics, for the comics industry as a whole. In the 80s, stories were getting more sophisticated, more interesting. Sales were coming up. Comics were getting bigger and more you know, well-known. You get into the late 80s, and they start selling lots and lots of copies. Yeah. And they're getting really big. Comic shops are opening up everywhere. By 1990 or so, the industry says, we can get people to buy more copies if we make 
different versions, if we make them rare, if we do oh, all these tricks. If you do the ones where it looks, I forget what it's called. Holographic. Ho- the holographic ones where oh, yeah. you could like slide them back and forth and see the picture differently. Yeah. Die cut covers, mm-hmm. uh, foil, foil covers, yep. uh, all kinds of gimmicky covers. And it would... playing to collectors ultimately, yeah. you know, and saying, hey, put your kids through college, collect a ton of comics. Yeah. And, and part of that was because the older comics because they were legitimately rare, were selling for a lot of money because they were collectible items, because they were hard to get in rare, uh, in high quality. So they were like, well, let's get in on this now. Let's, let's buy up these, you know, tons of copies of Sleepwalker number one, because surely one day that's going to be <laughs> worth so much money. And so that ended up causing a giant bubble. In the comics industry, Marvel just won part of it. This was happening at DC. This was happening at other companies as well. And so for the first half of the decade, it was building, building, and building. And a bubble like that, it's eventually going to burst. Right. Just was not sustainable. What also happened is in the early 90s, seven of Marvel's top storytellers decided to break off and form Image Comics. They wanted to do creator-owned stuff. You know, you see the industry sort of start to change. You have companies taking some really cool chances, but the industry really was having a difficult time supporting. I remember my comic shop at the time didn't survive. They couldn't survive the bubble bursting and, you know, wasn't because of any one thing. It was sort of everything on top of itself. Well, it was, you know, it was just the market. The market changed, media changes, pop culture changes, and the entire market sort of ebbed back and the bubble burst. And on December 27th of 1996, Marvel had such a large debt and it was shaken up so much by the decline in comics that uh, Marvel Entertainment actually had to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Yeah, there's a chance that we would not be here right now if things had gone slightly differently. There's some stabilization that happens Mm -hmm. in the late 90s with some stuff that happens with the films. You know, Fox gets the X-Men movie rights. Uh, Sony gets the Spider-Man movie rights. Those things help us stay afloat in a a big way um, that allows Marvel Comics to continue on, to keep creating, to keep doing cool stuff. Licenses really saved us. Yeah. I mean, ultimately. It was it was really important. And then within the comics industry, you know, we were able to refocus in and what has served us the most, number ones, being able to reinvent ourselves. So Heroes Reborn became an important crossover in the Marvel Universe. Which is also fascinating because Heroes Reborn brought in many of the creators that left for Image Comics. They come back to help rebirth a lot of these stories that only lasts for a year so there's still some big success there the industry is still struggling marvel was able to use this to start bouncing back and then you get into like 97 98 creatively marvel's now really taking off again especially when you look at marvel knights Joe Quesada, Jimmy Palmiotti coming in, thinking about storytelling in a, in a fresh way, especially as Joe Quesada becoming editor-in-chief, really sparking things. Daredevil and Humans, Black Panther, Century, those books kickstarting a, a big change. Some of that bubble burst allowed, because it was like, well, we're going to have to be more creative and we're going to have to allow for like some different type of storytelling and things got grittier and darker. And I think, you know, that really served an audience that hadn't been maybe reading superheroes. 
Totally. There's a ton more that we could get into about the 90s. Uh, if we want to talk about pouches, if we want to talk about fashion, <laughs> we want to talk about the the updates in coloring, technology, yeah. printing, paper. There's a million different things that we could dig into. Well, the but, beginning of the computer age. Yeah. All of that, so much more that we could go into. But uh, really, by the end of the 90s, we start to get in a big, big upswing. Uh, Marvel Comics comes out of bankruptcy. We start doing really cool stuff. The Ultimate Universe is born. That's the 2000s. That's sort of where we want to leave it because we want you guys to hear from Tom Brevoort, Ralph Macchio, as they dig into a bunch of stories, more information, uh, perspectives, and, and really fun stuff about Marvel Comics in the 1990s. All right. So um, you guys have both edited long runs you know is there a secret to editing a title for a decade for more than a decade you know working on those runs don't get fired <laughs> yeah that's the, that's, that's the, the secret, secret. <laughs> uh, that's it that's it all right that's, that's the secret there is no, uh, i i would say if you have a character that you really love like captain america or thor or daredevil to me i i could have stayed on them another 10 years you know um and uh, with thor i had a couple of times i was on on and off so it was, it was, to me, they were just wonderful experiences. And uh, when you're working with good creative people, you just never grow tired of it. There's always something else you can think of to do with the character, and you just never run out of, you know, ideas and such. So um, uh, to me, and, and like Tom said, just don't get fired. Just stick with it. <laughs> so that's, that's the secret. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's absolutely right because while you have editorially a long run, there are different – creative runs within that time. Different writers and artists come on and each person that comes in brings their own sensibility and their own take to the character and assuming you've hired good people and the right people, those are interesting and successful enough that you're able to, to do those runs. So it is. The Marvel characters are multifaceted and you can always find something else in them by turning them around and looking at them slightly differently, you know, a, different, a different point of view or a different spotlight. So, uh, you know, there's always there's always stuff that you can find uh, that haven't been done before uh, that that's interesting to do. Uh, you know, Ralph, you mentioned, you know, the characters that you love and yeah. you know, finding those things. And, and Tom, you, you said similar stuff. But what about bringing a new title to life? You know, when you are maybe even a new character to life, what you know, how do you guys approach that as editors, as, as people who are saying, let's say if we were going to take a Night Thrasher or, or a title that, you know, was Quasar, what is that process like? Well, if you're starting, um, you're you're setting the parameters again when you when you begin a book. One of the one of the strangest um, things that I worked on that we started was something called Crystar, the Crystal Warrior, which we we kind of did something in reverse. Instead of having a toy company come to us with a product, we created it, and then Mark Grunwald and I with uh, John Romita Jr. and then we made that into a comic, and that was sold to a toy company, if I remember that correctly. Yes, that's right. And that was a, an interesting way of, of starting something. So that, to me, was, was the, probably the most memorable thing I had of, of starting a comic. But, but it's great to get in on the ground floor of something and be there you know, before anybody else and um, just setting the guideposts and the parameters for that particular character and seeing how far you can carry it before, um, you know, before somebody else takes over. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the key thing and the thing that I'll stress to the younger editors today in terms of starting a book that's a new book is uh, it's it's got to stand on some patch of ground that nothing else is standing on. Certainly in the Marvel Universe or the Marvel publishing line and preferably 
within the whole of, of comic book publishing. It has to have something to offer that's unique uh, in terms of, you know, the, the, the character, the background, the point of view, the perspective, you know, whatever the, whatever the thing is, um, it can't just be more of the same. We can always do another Spider-Man book, but if you're going to do another character that's basically just doing Spider-Man, we might as well publish more Spider-Man. There's no, there's no point in it, and you're not going to be able to attract an audience as, as readily as, as if you're doing something that's got some, some nugget, some flavor that you get from it that you can't get in any other book. Last time we were together, we talked a little bit about um, during the shooter era, working on New Universe, various different times. Uh, what about the speculator boom times? You know, I, you know, for me, I was a reader. I remember reading you know, Wizard Magazine, learning about a lot of comics, and then coming in and like getting absorbed in a lot of the X-Books and, and, and the superhero stuff uh, really heavily in the 90s. What was Marvel like, you know, when you, you had like Jim Lee and Chris Claremont and, and, you know, Rob and everybody just blazing away on lots and lots of comics? Well, the thing I remember about it is is the um, the, the formats that, that we used, the, the cardstock covers and the, the crazy things that we would do at that point. Um, we had great material in the books, but then we would go commercially. We would do these these wild things to sell the books, um, and uh, there were just so many so many types of things that we did. Uh, Tom, you probably remember even better than I do what what types of covers we had. Back yeah, we had all sorts of cover enhancements, whether it's you know, chromium, chromium covers and holographic there foil and holograms and you know die cut covers. We just did a die cut cover on Spider Man number one, first one That's in. Right. Uh, maybe 20 wow. years, uh, you know, fold-out covers and, you know, right. literally, you know, anything that we could figure out to do uh, to put on a, on a cover to try and make it special and try and attract people to it, we would, we would do. You know what? To be honest, though, those worked. I can close my eyes, and I remember walking home with my copy of Wolverine number 50, which had the yellow, it had three yeah, die-cut claws. claw, claw yep. marks. I, yep. I can... It's a weird thing to have such a visceral memory, mm -hmm. but I remember that so so greatly. Or like, what about after you know Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, that team? They left, you know, to eventually form Image. What was Marvel like in that time period? Well, you know, the the, the great thing about uh, about Marvel is its resilience. And yes, these guys were top creators, but as I recall. The X-Men books still retain the top spot because I think Bob Harris was the editor back then, yep. right? He was line editing X-Men. He was line editing X-Men. And I, I think I remember the, the dinner at one of the restaurants where these guys were telling Bob that they were going to leave. And um, he then got the Cuberts on the books. And he was not going to let the, those books slip, even losing you know people like that. And the same thing with the guys on Spider-Man, etc. So Marvel still, you know, was up there with those uh, with those books, but but they made an impact with those image comics, as as we said before. Thing about the Marvel characters is they're so brilliantly conceived that anybody that that reads them, any kid, they're going to come back to them no matter what because you just have to find out what's going to happen with Peter Parker and Spider Man, and that's not true with a lot of other characters at other companies. But we've got the we've got the fully realized characters at Marvel, and people are going to come back to them, and they always do. Yeah, I tell there's a there's a story I tell about this period um, and how it all worked, you know, because it all kind of started the 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 boom 
kind of started with with Spider-Man One, Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man Number One, and Todd before that had been doing Amazing Spider-Man. He'd done it for a number of years. Dave McElhinney was writing it, and he decided to stop doing that. And uh, you know, his editor Jim Salakrup said, "How about you do a new Spider-Man Number One, and it'll be a book that you can write and draw." Uh, and it was a way of keeping Todd, you know, doing Spider-Man stuff because his Spider-Man was very popular. But, you know, nobody really anticipated that it was going to sell what it sold. It had one of the, the earliest enhanced covers. It had, uh, you know, the silver foil ink in the web pattern on the cover. But, the, you know, long story short, they sold about a million copies of Spider-Man number one. Uh, you know, the first time uh, a Marvel comic had sold a million copies since uh, Star Wars. And at the end of that year, um, you know, every year, you know, the editor-in-chief gets his marching orders from the suits upstairs about, like, what are the goals for publishing in that year? And at the end of that year, you know, because it wasn't just Spider-Man 1, Spider-Man 2 sold well and Spider-Man 3 sold well, all of which sold way better than anything anybody thought. And so at the end of that year, uh, the editor-in-chief, Tom DeFalco, went, you know, to, to the, the guys and they said, Great. You did a great job this year, Tom. Now do it again, but more. <laughs> yep. And Tom came down and huddled with you know, Mark Grunwald and, and Bob Budiansky and Carl Potts and Ralph and whoever and went, what the heck are we going to do? Like, Spider-Man was a fluke. There's no way we're going to be able to equal this a second time. And, uh, you know, and so in talking what was going on, what was hot, what was happening, you know, the decision was made – We'll do two things next year. We'll do X-Men number one, because that's the closest we're going to be able to get to Spider-Man number one. And we're going to turn this the book New Mutants into this thing that Rob has an idea for, X-Force. And maybe between the two of them, we might just be able to squeak by and make our numbers. And then, you know, X-Force 1 came out and sold three and a half million copies. <laughs> and, and then X-Men 1 came out and sold eight million copies. That's the best-selling book we've ever put out. And so at the end of that year, Tom went up upstairs <laughs> to the guys and they said, great job, Tom. Now do it again, but more. <laughs> and Tom came down again and went to, you know, assembled all of his editors and went, the heck are we going to do now like you know the first time was a fluke this is nonsense you know 11 and a half million how are we gonna and the the solution they came up with is we're going to do lines and that's when we launched 2099 and it's when we launched midnight suns and you know we, we tried to expand everything into a line and again maybe if you stack it all up it'll be enough, enough to, to be uh, and it was uh, and this continued for a couple of years until you finally got to the point where the whole like little Jenga tower just collapsed, and when it collapsed, it all went down. Like you couldn't you couldn't be building those numbers infinitely, um, but that was always the the marching the order. It was yeah. always more. you know more air in the balloon, and eventually the balloon pops, and that's what happened. And that's the story of the nineties. <laughs> that's the best encapsulation. That's a beautiful of, encapsulation of that I've ever heard. That's, <laughs> that's perfect. perfect. Uh, man, uh, so that is, you know, the, the bulk of the 90s. But of course, you know, by the end of the decade, we see uh, Joe Quesada, Jimmy Palmiotti come in for Marvel Knights and stuff like that. We, we did some conversations last year about the Marvel Knights. What are your favorite stories that you remember editing? It, it's tough to say. I, I loved editing uh, Doctor Strange, a favorite of mine, and I had a great time on that working with Roy again. 
And um, certainly the Thors, uh, whether it was Simonson or DeFalco, you know, I loved both of them. And uh, that was the great run. The Daredevil stuff, uh, certainly working with Miller was wonderful, but equally so. And Nascenti and John Romita Jr. One of my favorite I runs love, of right? comics. A great, great run. Uh, no, I mean, everybody remembers Frank and they talk about Frank, but I think Andrun right up there with them. And John Jr. doing incredible stuff on there. His Mephisto still gives me chills. He wanted so he wanted weird. him to look a little different, and he yeah. he wanted the freedom to make to make him look something uh, different than John Buscema's version. So we said, "Yeah, go ahead." So those are those are some of my favorite uh, things to work on. That's cool. Tom, well, uh, you know, uh, the 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 world will remember me as well. I edited the. Kurt and George Avengers, and I edited the Brian and David Finch and everybody else new Avengers, and I don't care about the world. I, <laughs> I care about Civil you. War. Uh, well, I, I don't, there's a He's preamble. getting to it. He's we getting to it. A thing leading into um, it. You know, uh, yeah, really for me, it's you know, it comes down to two runs. You know, the two runs that are at the top of my my pyramid. Uh, the Mark Wade, Mike Ringo, Fantastic Four run. That's that's uh, the, the one. And right there, slightly below it, is the dance lot, Mike Allred, Silver Surfer. That's some good comics. Yeah. All of us. Very good. Um, all right. So this one, this this question, I, I understand and I know it can be answered and in numerous ways because there are numerous ways uh, that this could happen. But what is the process for creating a character or coming up with a story between an editor and a writer or an artist Obviously, I know sometimes you guys come up with things. Sometimes, you know, there, there's all these different ways. But, I, you know, the creation of something, I think, is a fascinating discussion. And from an editor perspective, you know, how, how, often, how do you see these come to light? Uh, when I'm editing something, I just try to guide the um, – I try to stay in the background and, and, and guide the creators and bring out what they have to, to offer and not – impose my own particular creative vision on it and say, no, you really should do this with the character. See what they want to do with the character. As long as, you know, the editor is, is the backstop. He's the guy that's, that's the final word on it. He's the one that says, you know, this may be out of character. You know, talk to the, you talk to the creator about it, and hopefully that you'll come to some sort of a meeting of the minds. But any creator that comes in a Marvel comic has got ideas, and you want to bring forth his ideas or her ideas, and you want, to, you want to bring it out in the best way possible. Same thing with the art. You want to get that artist to produce his very best work for you on that book. So you try to work with their ideas, and you try to bring out, just try to bring out the very best in the people that you're working with and hope that, um, that it's, it's just going to you know, find the public out there for it. So that, that's the way I, I try to work as an editor. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's so many different levels to what you're talking about. There's creating a book. There's creating a story within that book. There's creating a new series. There's uh, so it's a, it's and it, and it varies from person to person. You know, uh, one of the things that I that I throw off a lot, particularly again when talking to the younger editors, is uh, you know this line: the you know the creators get the credit, the editors get the blame, and that's. You know, that's just the state of play. That's not a complaint. That's not a, a, a you know, an axe I've got. That's just understand it. That's how it works. So, you know, on any given project, I'll often throw out a bunch of ideas, you know, puzzle pieces I like to think of them as. Here's a bunch of thoughts I've had. 
you know, what if Iron Man was green? What if, you know, whatever, <laughs> Tony Stark shaved his mustache? What would happen? You know, whatever these ideas are that are kicking around in my head uh, for wherever we are or wherever we might want to go, but they're really intended more as thought starters than I absolutely need for, for Iron Man to be green next month. Um, but there's something there that's that's intriguing to me and that hopefully somebody will pick up on and come back with a response or, or, or whatnot to provide some direction or guidance towards what I'm looking for or what I'm thinking rather than having somebody have to come in cold. Although quite often people do come in cold and just have an idea and pitch it and you go, okay, that sounds good, let's, let's do that. And it's the same kind of thing with you know editing a, a story or a script. I'll go back with notes or with comments on a script. And typically that takes two forms. You know, I'm finding problems or what I think are problems. You know, either the story has a logic flaw or a character is acting out of character or there's something that hasn't been considered. And I almost always will offer up suggestions as to how you might fix that. Maybe this or maybe that. Um, but I, And I tell people this, I legitimately don't care whether you use the half-baked idea that I've just thrown off or not, what I care about is that we fix the problem. And so as long as you come back with something that fixes the problem, whether you use the spackle that I gave you or some other spackle, it's irrelevant to me. And it's also a valid solution if you can convince me that what I think is a problem isn't actually a problem. Uh, and, of course, Iron Man will be green and have no mustache right. moving forward. Never Iron again. Man, the thing with the Iron Man was having the nose. <laughs> that was the thing. <laughs> Remember that story? Tom? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, boy. What, what's, what's the story behind the, the nose? In the 70s. You want to do it? Yeah, it, was a, it had something to do with – somebody had said, and, and Tom may want to correct me on this, but I, I think had to do with – Stan wasn't at Marvel. Uh, he was out on the coast or something like that. And uh, somebody had decided or that, that Stan wanted Iron Man to have a nose. Yeah, the way, the way it Go happened ahead. or the Probably. way that I heard the story was, you know, Stan, at that point, he was actually still at, at Marvel. He was yes, still, he, was. He, was still, he was still on the East Coast, but he was in the publisher role. So he wasn't active in the day-to-day -day making of all of the books. And so every once in a while, he would go through make-ready copies or whatnot and, you know, give notes to whoever the editor-in-chief happened to be or, you know, insights onto stuff. And so at, at, at one point, um, there was some issue of either Iron Man or Avengers, and he didn't like the art on it. Uh, and there's some panel where Iron Man's drawn, and he's drawn in profile, and the mask is very flat. And what Stan said was, like, he's got no nose. <laughs> like, how does he? And it's just a throwaway comment, but the the... the Editor went out of there and went, Stan wants Iron Man to have a nose. <laughs> and so they redesigned Iron Man's armor so it had like a like a triangular <laughs> tin man nose, which he had for like, I don't know, a year or so. Yeah, he did have it for a year. Uh, right? Until, you know, Stan saw the make ready and went, why does he have this <laughs> nose? That looks stupid. And everyone, didn't you want him to have the, oh, I didn't mean that. And so they then had to get rid of the nose again. But it's uh, yeah, you can you can you can spot that year of comics a mile away. Yeah, because Iron Man had a Iron Man had a nose. I love it. You know, there, there's a there's a funny story when you talk about what an editor uh, does, um, and how how he has to interact with freelancers. We we did a story one time in the Howard the Duck magazine that Gene Colan had drawn, 
And Gene was was kind of notorious for not. I mean, he's the most fabulous artist you could you could work with, but he didn't really read the entire plot <laughs> through. Yes. He would sort of read like the first couple of pages, then he'd draw them and all. Yes. Well, we had a character. Bill Mantlow had written this Howard the Duck story, where he had a character in there called a the one-armed bandit. And it turns out that, you know, it was supposed to look somewhat <laughs> differently than what Gene had done because Gene was only reading it from the beginning. So he had this character who was a villain cavorting across rooftops and committing crimes and all that with his arm behind his back. <laughs> <laughs> just, we got the pencils and we called up Mantle and said, why has this guy just got his arm behind his back? He goes, no, that's not the way it was supposed to be. He was supposed to be the one-armed bandit, but Gene hadn't read it till he got to the end, and then he, he changed, I guess, the last little bit. But we had to go back to Gene and explain the situation. I forgot if we – we may have even left it in there because it was Howard the Duck, so we may have done it. But I know when we got the pencils, he just had his arm behind his back. So yeah, you, know, you, you, you guys took, the, took those arms out. He's, we did he, take those? Yes, okay, those, those arms I all got erased for the actual book. <laughs> But the pencils do have this guy, this guy running around, and his arms behind his back doing crime. What is he doing? I think it would have been funnier if we'd left it in now. That I, in retrospect. It, probably, it probably would have. Yeah. But you were doing what you th- the, the job that you thought you should have done. Um, all right. Uh, we're going to wrap up very shortly. Uh, what advice would you guys give to someone who wants to begin a career in comics, specifically at Marvel, uh, whether it's writing, editing, becoming an artist? You know, from your perspective, your your tenures here at Marvel? Know the material. I mean, you, you really should be prepared to just know, you know, know Marvel backwards and forwards. And, and don't come in with any kind of an attitude or a chip on your shoulder that, you know, if you're, if you're going to write or draw something, uh, I'm better than so-and-so that you're using, so why don't you use me? This used to be a thing, you know, we would get sometimes at conventions where you'd, you'd look at someone's art portfolio that wanted to work at Marvel, and it was, it was okay and all that, but they would assume that you were going to use them because they looked at other artwork that they saw published at Marvel, and they felt what they had done was better than so-and-so. So how come you're not going to use me? And some people would actually get angry. So don't ever go in with an attitude. You know, Just accept the fact that you're, you're just starting out, and you're going to have a lot to learn, and over time you will learn it. But, but uh, just, you know, you're working at the biggest comic book company, and... Uh, just give it your all and, and just come in prepared, And whether you're a creator or you're going to work on staff. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and, and this goes for most of the disciplines. Um, don't, don't set out to be a Marvel creator. You know, set out to be a creator. Set out to be a writer. Set out to be an artist. Um, you know, don't, don't narrow your focus so much to be it's just Marvel or it's just, you know, Spider-Man or, or whatever. Particularly these days, that's not, that's kind of not how it works. You don't, nobody starts at Marvel. Uh, everybody starts somewhere else. You know, you can't come in here without some track record somewhere that makes people think that you can do this professionally. So, uh, you know, it's great if you have, you know, a, a backwards and forwards knowledge of Spider-Man, but that's not going to be enough to get you your first spider-man gig what is is having written something that that uh you know or drawn something that that people see and and respond to up here uh, and think that that's somebody that's got something i bet they could make a a worthwhile contribution to what we do um but uh you know a lot of guys you know trying to get in really are just focused on that one thing and they they really need a broader base to, to draw upon 
Or, you know, find Don McGregor hanging out at some convention and hang, <laughs> hang around Hang around him. with him for a while. <laughs> that, that, that too, I'm told, works. Uh, any specific advice for someone who wants to be an editor? Um, because I, I think that is, uh, as you had mentioned, Tom, you give this advice to the young, yeah. the young staff, uh, you know, taking the, you know, you get the blame, not the credit. Right. Um, it's not a glamorous job, but it's, you guys do some amazing work. I, uh, for me, I would say have good people skills. Um, accept the fact that uh, you're going to be working with a variety of different people, and uh, there are going to be creative clashes. This is this is a creative business, so be prepared to deal with that. Be prepared to be calm and reasonable, and don't fly off the handle. And just accept the fact that uh, you know everybody wants to put out the best comic, but there are many roads to doing that, and there, there are going to be a lot of roadblocks and problems along the way. But as the editor, you've got to be back there and you've got to work with all the people on the book and you've got to make it all work out. So have good people skills. Be, be prepared to, to work with other human beings and, and uh, deal with all their, their faults and foibles and accept them. I imagine you, you guys have probably had those moments where you're holding the phone out because somebody is uh, loud on the other end of it. I see the smile <laughs> on happened. your face, Ralph. Yep. That's okay. They yep. blow themselves out and then you go back to being reasonable. There you go. Yep. Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the best thing you can do for yourself, because honestly, the path to being an editor at, at Marvel, there's no there's no direct route. You know, there's no directions I could give you, you know, turn off at exit 13 <laughs> and then take this highway over here and make a left. And it's a completely happenstance sort of thing. Um, you know, what you can do is you can develop, you know, a working knowledge of how storytelling works in any and all fields, uh, you know, and the basics of, of crafting a, a good story and what makes a story work, how the engine of a story functions, um, uh, and anything that you can learn about how, uh, you know, a publication of any sort uh, is put together. In terms of the editorial hiring, we've had a lot of success, strangely enough, uh, with people that came out of a theater background. Uh, and it's sort of the same kind of thing, like mounting a mounting a production, mounting a show is not that different in a certain mindset way from putting together a comic book story. And so those are a set of skills that have translated over um, for for a number of people that, that have come in. But uh, yeah, so really, it's 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 kind of that. The more you can understand how to how to go about building what we build, you know, the better leg up that you'll have. Well said. Gentlemen, thank you for indulging me on these uh, these two episodes. Uh, love picking your brains, and we, we love uh, doing it. Would like to have you back at some point for I don't know whatever <laughs> you guys want to talk about. I would love to talk. Well, I do want to say one thing at the Please. end. You know, you, Tom just had his thirtieth anniversary here, and he's one of the guys who works behind the scenes, but but he's a really a pillar at Marvel, and and I would have to say uh, some would say two a, pillars. He may be two pillars. <laughs> I would have to say that having worked with Tom for, for decades, that he's not only the, the guy who makes the trains run on time, he's the guy that lays the track and digs the tunnel that the train runs through. I mean, nobody works harder at this place than he does and, and has for a long time. But he works behind the scenes. He's not a flashy freelancer or creator or whatever it is, but he is there day after day, year after year, and a lot of Marvel success has to do with this guy right here. Well said. I just want to say uh, that to him. It was very lovely. Couldn't agree he more. He deserves it. Yes. 
All right, big thanks once again to Tom Brevoort and Ralph Macchio for uh, joining us for two episodes. They are tremendous, have so much fun stuff. Uh, Tom Brevoort has an Instagram where he's posting old Marvel stuff, and it is incredible. Follow him on every social platform. The knowledge that he has is incredible. I'm already obsessed with him on Tumblr because he takes Tumblr questions and he's fabulous. Oh, man, the best. But hey, guess what? What's that? Next week is Star Wars week. I think our question of the week should be, what is your favorite Star Wars comic? Yeah, you can tweet us your answers using the hashtag This Week in Marvel. You can email them to us at twimpodcast at marvel.com. That's T-W-I-M. Or you can send us a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. This is a really tough question for me to answer. Like, what is my favorite Star Wars comic? Because... The last five years, which we're going to get into as we get into our Star Wars stuff, has been so friggin' good that we've had put out so many great stories for Star Wars. And then you even think about stuff like Tag and Bank or, you know, the... the... Or some of the, like, little miniseries, too, like the Leia series and the Lando series, mm-hmm, like, so delightful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not going to answer this this week. I'm going to do a little <laughs> bit of thinking and, and give my answer next week. Uh, So we'll talk more about Star Wars next week. Remember, tell us your favorite Star Wars. In our community section this week, though, we did want to drop a couple more uh, 90s favorites from some creators and people that had suggestions that kept coming up over and over again. Zach Thompson, who is uh, one of our writers here at Marvel, he suggested Punisher POV, which is a book I've never read. So I got to go check that out. Javier Rodriguez said... Death Blow slash Wolverine crossover, especially the first issue. Aaron Weisenfeld's art is breathtaking. Yeah, he posted some pictures, and Javier is, of course, one of our greatest artists. Yes. Um, those pages are amazing. And like, I love when an artist is like, this art because there's they see things in it that we just can't see uh jed mckay our friend who writes black cat and so much more he says bashrock and scorpion throwing down in punisher number 69 by abnett lanning braithwaite williamson and shiel i have to also say dan abnett andy lanning their punisher stuff was so good everything they did together was great but i loved their punisher uh, Patch Zercher says, I enjoyed Gerard Jones and Jeff Johnson's Wonder Man. Jeff has a loose style, cartoony style that's still very well drawn. And the title has some of my fave guest stars. A bunch of people chimed in about Daydreamers, which, as Chris McFeely at Chris McFeely says, is by J.M. DeMattius and Todd DeZago. There was actually also a lot of J.M. DeMattius suggestions throughout. He I did noticed that. So much great work in the 90s. Douglas Wolk, who is a, an incredible comics historian, um, he said, how about the breathtaking 1997 Man-Thing run by J.M. DeMattius and Liam Sharp? There was also a suggestion for Scarlet Redemption, a storyline by DeMattius in Moon Knight. Yeah. Um, I want to shout out Brett White, one of our friends from Decider, wrote in X-Force number 19, Cannibal standing up to Xavier all day, every day. I don't know if anyone loves X-Men as much as Brett White. And that's like really saying something. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. A lot. On that note, uh, we're going to end our community section with one more from Karis Pollard. She says, so my This Week in Marvel goes to Valkyrie. It's utterly beautiful. Shouting out to Jesus Abertov. And Karis says, I really love the series and the somehow joyful tone she strikes. She deals with a Reaper in a very satisfying way. Plus, I will never not love the Yorkshire horse, a.k.a. Mr. Horse, a.k.a. the best new Marvel character of 2019. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That was This Week in Marvel. This Week in Marvel was produced by Persia Verlin and Zachary Goldberg. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio and additional production help from Jamie Prevely and Emily Kimura. 
Special thanks goes to the Infinity Gauntlet for uh, just making all this possible, just being a swell, wonderful love glove that uh, means a whole lot to all of us, especially throughout the 1990s. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. And this is Marvel. Your universe. Oh, 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 oh